We're in 1 Corinthians 14 still, but this chapter is an apostolic corrective to a congregation that's worshiping together selfishly. It, you know, I, one of the things I like about the Bible is it doesn't paint a rosy picture of everybody all the time. It doesn't paint a picture of people that seem to have everything always put together. Matter of fact, I, I think the book of Genesis should be renamed as the book of dysfunctional families. Because it really is. I mean, when you read through it, if you think your family's bad and you think you're dysfunctional, read Genesis, you'll feel better about your family. And, and so when Paul's writing this book to the Corinthians, he's not pulling any punches. He's telling us what it's like and what they're like, and he's reminding them of who they are. And in uh, chapter 14, verses 1 through 25, he's really dealing with a group of people that he's heard is struggling with unity and common purpose as they gather together for worship. And so basically what he's told them to do is just to grow up. Just grow up. Quit acting like little kids. And because there's this immaturity that's working among them. It was an inability to agree on consistent priorities in public worship. They had all kinds of things all messed up in their services. And the central theme in, uh, of Paul in this uh, chapter, his counsel was to priority of um, spiritual edification in worship a clear communication through the prophetic proclamation of truth. And Paul said if there's going to be speaking in tongues, it had to be interpreted. The apostle was also con convinced that a commitment to edification, building up in, in worship, would result in public meetings that were meaningful to believers and a clear presentation of the gospel to those who came in for the first time. Now he, that's what he's saying would happen if they got together and put this thing together the way God called them to do it. And so that's kind of the, the central theme of the first 25 verses. But then in verse 26 to 40, he kind of goes to the necessity of order in worship. And that word order appears two times in these verses. In verse 26 um, through 40. In verse 33, he says, God is not a God of confusion, disorder, but of peace. And in verse 40, he says, let all things be done decently and in order. And we know from earlier studies in this letter that the church had a problem with operating in a decent way within the church body as they came together for worship. We saw it in chapter 11 where Paul's calling them out on their, their time together around the love feast or the communion table. Let me just read to you what he said to them back in chapter 11 that we studied some months ago. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better but for worse. For in the first place, you come together as a church. I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. The section that flows out of that from um, chapter 11 to chapter 14 tells us that these believers are using their spiritual gifts to please themselves and not to help other believers, sisters and brothers grow in Christ. And so the key word in Corinth at the church was not edification, but it was exhibition. 
They were showing off. They were, they were coming to worship and showing off their spiritual gifts. And they forgot the priority of what Paul called them and what God calls us to in our worship. And, and, and they, were, they were never looking out for the betterment and the edification or the building up of their brothers and sisters in Christ. All they cared about was what they looked like, what they sounded like, how people noticed them when they came into the worship service. It wasn't about the building up of the body of Christ. And the disorderliness in, in Corinth results from a high degree of individualized worship expectations in their service. The result, Paul says, is carnal confusion, not edifying order. Paul's response is to offer some guidelines for orderly regulation of worship based on self-control. We'll get into that a little bit more, but he makes the assumption, and probably rightly so, that the Holy Spirit is among and in these believers. And therefore, if the Holy Spirit is a part of what's going on, the fruit of the Spirit is also evident. And part of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. But they were lacking in self-control. He wanted the, the church to connect with God and be concerned about others. That's what Paul was really getting after. So let's read the opening exhortation in verse 26. And it's a picture of the early, early church, and it speaks to the issue of order. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Now, I really like it the way that it's uh, paraphrased in Eugene Peterson's The Message. And here it says, so here's what I want you to do. When you gather together for worship, each one of you be prepared with something that will be useful for all. Sing a hymn, teach a lesson, tell a story, lead a prayer, provide an insight. You see, what, what Paul's really getting out at here is he's got this list of things, but it's not an exhaustive list list of things that sh uh, of the order of worship should, that should be taking place in the church. He's not saying this is all there is to it. As a matter of fact, when you go back and you look at Acts chapter 2, when the church was born out of Pentecost, um, you get a list of other things that they did as the church when they came together for worship. Among the things they did when they got together were sitting under apostolic instruction, enjoying fellowship, observing the Lord's Supper, praying, sharing finances, having love feasts, holding worship services, and doing evangelism. So there's a whole variety of things that can take place in a worship service. And so what we do here isn't the only thing that can be done in a worship service. And I'm just saying that right off the get-go. There are other things that we can do. There are a lot of other things that we can step into. But as we take a closer look at these verses in verse 26... You know, what Paul is really trying to get at is like what he said back in verse 16 is he wants participation from the, the body as they come together. And Paul actually said it in his that he's looking for a, an exuberant amen or two coming out of the group of people as they agree with what he's telling them about who Jesus is. That's, that's participation in it. But let's look more closely because 
they're called to participate by singing a psalm. Now, in Ephesians chapter 5, it also mentions singing of, of hymns and spiritual songs. And in our worship in this church, we sing some texts that are based on the psalms. And the psalms are the Old Testament hymn book for the Jewish worshipers. We sing newly composed hymns of praise, worship and adoration of the Lord. And we sing spiritual songs that speak of experience, feeling, and the sub subjective side of our relationship with Jesus. Then Paul goes on to mention a teaching, perhaps a doctrinal instruction that would be shared in the service. He mentions a revelation. A revelation is truth communicated directly from God. God communicated that way with biblical writers before the New Testament canon of Scripture was completed. And God spoke words of revelation to individuals in the early church. As Paul has mentioned several times, that God revealed to him these things, and then he shares with them what they are. But now God has completed that revelation. We have it in the form of our Bible. He reveals himself to us through the inscripturated word. Everything we need to know about God and everything God wants us to know about Him is found in the Bible. The last thing Paul mentions is tongues and the interpretation of tongues. And we talked a lot about that at length last week. But because of the abuse in the church in Corinth, these gifts were called for regulation. And that's what we're going to look at now. Paul makes the point in the last statement of verse 26, that all of this exciting participation has to be purposeful. It says, let all things be done for building up. Everything ought to be uh, offered with the concern that people be built up spiritually, not to show off or benefit the person who's offering the expression of worship. It kind of struck me that as we keep coming to church on Sunday morning, we come because we expect that there will be um, spiritual impact in our lives. I, I don't know why you would come other than that. We, we want to be challenged and we will be challenged. We'll be encouraged. We'll be strengthened. We'll be reminded of the things that we need to hear as we face into the week ahead. And for those of us who participate in leading the worship service, it is our desire that everything we do benefits the hearers uplifts spirits, encourages hearts, and gives minds understanding. Our corporate worship ought to grow us out of an attitude of expectancy that God is going to meet us here and that he is going to reveal himself to us and that he's going to be at work in preparing us for the week that lies ahead. That's why we want to come to service. That's why we gather together. Now listen. There's a lot of stuff that, that goes on from right here where I'm standing that you don't participate in verbally. I hope you're participating mentally. That you're asking God all the time, what is it that you want me to learn as I hear your word being presented? But, you know, this is just one portion of the service. There's, there's other portions of this service where God expects you to participate with each other. Like when John says, okay, we're going to have a break, we're going to go back, we're going to eat some donuts, we're going to get some coffee. What John is really saying is speak into one another's lives. Bring encouragement to one another. Put an arm around and give someone a hug. Be sympathetic for where people are. 
Talk to them about, about life. Take some, a moment to offer some spiritual insight into their life. We do that in the middle of our service, and we give you an extended time after church to do that as well. We have times for people like before the service. If you're wondering, when do we have a prayer time that I can participate in? We do it at about quarter to ten. You go through that door, hang a sharp right, and you'll get into a room where there's a shotgun, you're in the right place. The whole point behind this is that whatever we do is to be for the edification of the body, to build one another up. And as we kind of learned last week, The edification or the building up stabilizes us. It provides foundations underneath us. Or it shores up the the shaky walls in our lives. Edification, the building up, is at the heart of our worship to Jesus. Paul warns us in verses 27 through 35 of three potential areas of disorder in our public worship. He's going to temper the spontaneity that he has just described in verse 26. And he's going to bring some regulation or regulate the expression of tongues or the gift of prophesying and the participation of women in public. Ladies, don't turn your hearing aids off yet. You got to get to what he's actually saying. Don't think that Paul is anti-women. He's a male chauvinist. He's not. Listen, there, There's a lot more to that. So... Hang in there with me. We'll get through those first two. Then when we get to the third one and you get an explanation on it, then you can make your judgment, okay? All right. So we're going to read um, verses 29 through, through 33. Wait a minute. We're going to go back and read actually 27 through 28. I'm skipping right along. If, if any speak in tongue, let there be two or at most three. And each in turn. And let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. There are three simple limits that Paul puts on the expressions of gifts in a worship service. First, only two or three people may speak in tongues at any given service. Second, they may only speak one at a time. And third, there must be an interpretation. If not... They should not speak. And remember, we saw the problems with the ver- it back in verse 23 last week of the problems when people are uh, just going willy-nilly and speaking tongues all over the place and, and they're just all participating in that spiritual gift. What Paul says is if a non-believer walks into a church service while that's taking place, the person who walks in is going to go like, These people are all crazy and they're going to turn around and walk back out and they will have never had a chance to hear the clear proclamation of who Jesus is. And so he's giving a little bit of order to it. He's saying two, at the most three, one at a time, and there has to be an interpretation of the tongues that's just spoken. If we don't have an interpreter, someone to interpret the tongues, then we need to keep quiet, have that gift of tongues used between ourselves and God. That's, that's what he lays out here as the order for orderly service, uh, an orderly church service. Now, 
I know that sometimes people believe that there's this irresistible impulse of the Holy Spirit that they just can't help themselves and they have to go off and they have to speak in tongues. But anybody with the gift of tongues can choose not to exercise that gift if the circumstances require it. I mean, there's always a time and a place for everything. And sometimes we need to exercise the the, the fruit of self-control and not say anything. And there are other times when we need to step into it and say what God has, has put into us through the gift of tongues. Now let's move on to verses 29 through 33. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion but of peace and in all the churches of the, as in all the churches of the saints. Now again, by the way of review, last week we saw that if we have this broad understanding, the spiritual gift of prophecy, the broadest sense of it, is very close to what we would call teaching and preaching today in our churches. That's a good definition of the word as it's being used in different settings in the New Testament. Remember, Paul's concern in this chapter is that God is able to speak to his people through the ministry of the word in public worship. Now, if you go to the Old Testament, prophets spoke the word of God by direct revelation to his people. Their primary ministry was foretelling, not to foretell. There were elements of prediction. But the bulk of the writing of the prophets, of what the prophets did, was telling forth the message of God that he wanted his people of Israel to hear. And each generation of prophetic spokesmen built on the prior written message. Often, they quoted the writings of earlier prophets in their own writings. So it was building scripture on scripture. That's what the Old, Old Testament prophets did. The prophetic ministry in the early church uh, in the first century was built on three, three things. First, it was built on the Old Testament because that was their Bible. That's what they had as a written word. So they always went to the Old Testament and they, they taught and had prophetic words off of the Old Testament. And it had to come from that Old Testament or line up with it. Second, it was built on the teaching of the apostles in their letters that were being circulated and in person as they traveled around from church to church. And the third thing, it was based on the direct revelation from God, as I said earlier, until the New Testament revelation was complete. Now, Ephesians 4.11 tells us that God has given us prophets or prophets to the church. And my conviction is that ministry today belongs to those who stand before the word of God and cause it to shine into the hearts and minds of the people who have gathered for worship. Um, There ought to be a transparency in the prophetic ministry so that those to whom it ministers sees through the prophet to the message of the word of God. But Paul had to place limits on the expectations of this good gift as well because 
of the presence of self-absorbed, ego-driven prophets that were in the church. And again, there are just three simple constraints, constraints that Paul brings. First, there are to be no more than two or three prophetic messages in any giving mess meeting. And obviously they must be offered one after another, not all at the same time. Second, each message has to be evaluated because preaching needs to be examined. And third, prophets have to be submissive to one another out of reverence for the Lord himself. Self-control can be exercised here as with the gift of tongues. The apostolic council is very close to what Paul's encouragement was to the Thessalonian church. First Thessalonians 5, he, he um, wraps around, it's wrapped around the prophetic ministry. And when you hear these piffy little commands, think about how you come to worship. Is this what carries you through a service? So here it is. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. For this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. By, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So now we have in, in 1 Corinthians 14 and in Thessalonians 5. Paul saying that we are to evaluate or examine the prophetic message. And the reason is to determine whether the speaker is speaking the word of God or whether he or she is empowered by the spirit of God. I really think that that's really important. I, I have an expectation of you. That when you go home, that you look up in your Bible and you start to take a look at what I preached about. You're writing questions maybe in your notes about something that doesn't make sense to you or something that didn't sound quite right. And so then you go back home and you do your own study on the passage that we just talked about this morning. And you're asking the Spirit of God to reveal to you what the truth is and if you heard it correctly. Because it really doesn't matter what I have to say at all. What really matters is what God has to say. And what God has to say is of the utmost importance for your life. And so there are times when you might go like, ooh, I don't know if that was right. And you might even send me an email and go like, hey, I just have a question about what you said in regards to this. And I am more than happy to get together with you and have a conversation on that to where we can explore it together and find out exactly what God's word has to say. I think that's highly important. But one of the questions that comes out of this, this passage is, who, uh, who are the others that he's talking about? It says, let others pass judgment. Are they fellow prophets who have the responsibility to evaluate the prophetic word? Or is it others in the body? In First Thessalonians, it's everybody. All of us are to examine closely what we're told from the platform. In verses 30 through 33, it's the summary of how prophets are to relate to one another. They don't have to give their message. They can defer to one another. I, I want you to know something. I've asked the people that are helping to um, bring the word here through teaching and preaching. 
I've asked them to have a message. I call it the hip pocket message. That, that if I call them up on a Saturday night or early on Sunday morning and go like, I can't preach this morning, you need to preach. They have that message and it's ready to go. Because to be honest with you, there could be a time in my life when God's convicting me of sin, a sin issue in my life that I need to get right with God. And it, the worst thing I could do is to get up here and make a proclamation of God's word while God's dealing deeply with something of significance in my life. And so there may be a time where I need to sit right down there and have the word ministered to me instead of me standing up here and making a proclamation about it. Now, there's other reasons why I told them to have one too because, you know, I'm getting old. Some days I just can't get out of bed. Sometimes I just don't want to come to church. I come anyway. My wife tells me I have to get up and go to church. But nonetheless, as we take and we look at what's going on, the Holy Spirit is in charge of every worship service. And if I actually, and I do, believe that the Holy Spirit's guiding through this process, if he tells me not to speak, I'm not going to speak. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to listen. And here's the greatest thing about when the Holy Spirit is at work in this church, as he should be in every church. There is never any confusion in his body. Peace rules because God is a God of peace, not confusion. We're going to look at the next two verses. And they could seem a bit intrusive because they talk about the ordering of women in worship. I'm just looking to make sure handguns are still in their purses. (laughs) Let me just say this. I'm the mailman. I didn't write the letter. I'm just delivering it. So I'm the mailman. Don't shoot the messenger, okay? I love you all. So here we go. Buckle in your seatbelt. Oh, and husbands, keep your elbows to yourself. (laughs) I'm saying that right off the the get-go, okay? No sideways glances. The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for women to speak in church. Now, I'm going to say this right now, right off, off the rip. When, when a pastor or a church takes that passage of Scripture by itself and pulls it out and says, this is what the Word of God has to say, they have done a great disservice to God and to the Word of God. You can't take this and stand alone on it. Because that's what we're reading there. If we take it at face value, we have missed the message of Paul to women in the church. Because if you go back again to chapter 11, you're going to see that Paul's talking to the women that when they're praying and prophesying, he's actually saying they should be doing that in the church, that they have a voice and that voice should not be muffled or silenced. That's what he says in chapter 11. But he, he, and the reason it comes up is because the women of the church were having this. All right. 
They've gone nuts. I'm telling you, they were just crazy. Because here's what it says in verses 5 and 6. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same with, with her whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. Basically what the passage is saying there is that the, the, the women of the night, the prostitutes, temple prostitutes, shaved their hair, their heads or wore their hair really short. They never wore a head covering. It was a cultural thing. And a woman of honor always wore a head covering in public. But what was happening is in chapter 11 and also in chapter 14 that Paul's addressing is that the women have now experienced this new freedom in Christ and they're taking that freedom to an overboard expression. Freedom is always good as long as it's kept within the confines of what the freedom gives us. I mean, you know, the Bible does, and, and, and listen, I know there, there are people who have addictions to alcohol that they've overcome and they're living in that. And they, they'll never drink another drop of alcohol. And I understand that. But, but for those of us who do not have that problem, the Bible does allow us to have a glass of wine or to have a beer. But it does say, don't get drunk. So the freedom is to drink, but the limitation is not to get drunk. That's what Paul's talking about here when it comes to women in, in, the, in the church because he's dealing with married women who had experienced incredible freedom in Christ but were taking advantage of their freedom and taking it too far. They weren't wearing a veil in worship. They were wearing short hair like a prostitute and, and they, they started to get argumentative about it and contentious. And the women were saying... Don't we have the freedom in Christ to defend our positions? The problem was is that they were exercising their freedom in a selfish manner. It was all about them. All right, so if the women are free to express themselves in worship, why does Paul tell them twice that they aren't to speak or talk? Well, the answer lies in the vocabulary that Paul has chosen. The Greek word for talk speaks of the most normal kind of conversation, even inconsequential talk. You could literally translate it or interpret it to be chit-chat or chatter. So here's what's going on uh, with this that, that Paul's addressing. He's saying that the women should not chatter during the worship, worship service. Some of the wives, not all of them, were interrupting the worship service with inappropriate talkativeness, perhaps asking questions or talking with people and sitting around. Now, there's a couple of different thoughts in this, in the worship service, because understand that the women and men were in, in that cultural setting were not equal value. Men had a higher place, women had a lower place. So there were a lot of times in those worship services where the men would sit in one section, the preferred section, and the women would sit in another section. And so maybe what was happening is there'd be something that would come up that would spark a question in one of the wives' ears, and she's sitting back over in that section, and her husband's sitting up over here, and she stands up and goes, 
Hey, Bobby, what do you think about that? I think that that's kind of crazy. I don't know about that resurrection thing. And it disrupts the whole service. Or maybe she's turning around and, you know, kind of throwing her arm over the back of the chair and just going, and just having this little conversation all by herself. And what's happening is, is the word of God is being proclaimed to the rest of the body for building up. There's a distraction going on amongst the women. And, and Paul's going like, you have got to knock it off. Because understand, remember what we're talking about here. Orderly worship. So anything that's distracting in the worship time, basically Paul's saying, knock it off. Grow up. Now, there are things that are distracting to you, I want you to know this, that are never distracting to me. Little kids, you hear them, I never hear them. I don't know why. I think that when I stand up here to to speak God's word, I never, like Jesus, suffer the little children to come unto me. They're precious. I love little kids, as long as you take them home with you. But let me, let me just bring this kind of to, and we don't really have this problem here in our church. Thank you for not having this problem. But I have seen it in a lot of other churches. And it, it, it comes to the same thing. What is a distraction and out of order in a worship service? It's when cell phones are going off. I mean, like, you know, you guys are so good. We don't even have to put a sign up in the back to turn your cell phone off. We never have told anybody to do that. Because you guys are going like, we're coming here for a purpose to hear from God. I have been in churches where when you walk in the front door, there's three or four signs says, turn your cell phones off, put them on silent. When you walk into the worship center, there's another bunch of signs. When you get your hand out, you open it up and it says, please put your cell phone on silent. I mean, there's like five or six different messages. And then just before the service starts, right up on the screen flashes this thing, a big circle with a cell phone and a line through it, right? No cell phones. And it's because people are so inconsiderate and selfish in their worship that they don't think about the distraction they're bringing to the other people around them. And that's exactly what Paul was talking about with these women. These women had, had stepped into this new freedom because what they had been before was subjected in their society and in their culture. They were second place or maybe even third place citizens and they didn't have anything that mattered to anybody. They just didn't matter. And now they come into, into the church and Paul's teaching about this freedom that we have and that we are all equal in the sight of God that there is no one greater than not male or female, not slave nor free, neither Jew nor Greek. We are all the same at the foot of the cross of Christ. Christ has brought us all to be equal together. And the women are going like, woohoo! Like, yeah, we've never heard this before. And the men are going, oh no! But it's like every freedom that God gives to us. There's a limitation on the freedom. Because as soon as we take a limit, a holy limitation off the freedom, it becomes an abuse. And so that's, that's really what, what Paul's talking about here when he talks to these women. He loves them. He wants them to participate in the worship service. But he wants there to be in the church for the benefit and the building up of the body of Christ Orderly worship. Let's move on to verses 
36 through 38. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Once again, there are three simple spiritual principles here. First, no church can claim special revelation or privilege. We are not the only gig in town. We're not the only ones that have the word of God. I am going to tell you that, that there are a bunch of churches in this town that I absolutely love and appreciate because they come up on every Sunday and they proclaim Jesus Christ is Lord. We love them. They're our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we pray for them. And we want to encourage them. And we can have fellowship with them. But yet there are other churches who claim that they have something special that nobody else has. If you hear that coming out of somebody's mouth from that church, there should be a big red flag going off. There should be a big red flashing light that says, warning, warning, warning. And you need to get away from that because what they're going to do is they're leading you down a place that God says, no, that's not true. What I have given, I have given to all the churches. Not, there isn't a single church that has something more or extra or special from any other church. You all have the Spirit of God. You all have the Holy Spirit working in, you li- in your life. You all have the gifts of the Spirit. No one is special. If I were to give a grade to every church in this town, including ours, everybody would get a C. Because we're average. Now, don't misinterpret what I'm saying. You are very special to God. God has a special place in his heart for you. He wants to connect deeply with you on every level of your life. He wants to infuse in you the Holy Spirit so that you proclaim and you believe and you live the word of God every day in your life. That's what he's calling. But as far as special, you're not special. I don't care what your mom told you. We're all average. All right? Um, so the, the second thing, um, is that the reality uh, was that the worship was out of control and spontaneity turned into, uh, into chaos and self-indulgence. It's not in line with the apostolic teaching of what was going on in their church. They had their own institutional arrogance that had blinded them to selfishness and lovelessness. Their worship service was driven by personal pride, not humility before the Lord. The word of God was not controlling their understanding of the worship service. And that can happen to our church as well. We've got to be aware of that because we, when we become institutional arrogant about how we do, do church and why we do the things we do, we have now stepped over the line of placing ourselves at a greater place than anybody else, and we are not. The second principle is no spiritual gift or insight is above apostolic authority. 
The point Paul is making is, is that if we are spiritually mature, then we will submit ourselves to the command of the Lord as it relates to our corporate worship. True spiritual people always recognize the ultimate authority of Scripture. They don't try to universalize their own experience. The Holy Spirit of God will never operate contrary to the written word of God. It, it just can't happen. So, many passages of Scripture, scripture describe God's revulsion at the type of his, this hypocrisy. He's not honored, but rather insulted by such phoniness. And such worship becomes a pathetic charade in which people often try to get God to pay attention to them or do something for them. It's destructive and deadening and will soon result in a terrible drain of the spiritual vitality from an individual and a congregation. But authentic worship breaks down personal antagonisms. It eliminates selfish ambition produces genuine humility and thankfulness. It links heart to heart and it builds up the church in love. That's what genuine, true, Holy Spirit worship does. And that's the result of submission to Jesus Christ as Lord of worship and submission to his word as dealing, uh, defining worship for us. The third principle is simple. We are to ignore those who ignore the first two principles. <laughs> Duh. They're not following number one and number two. Then don't listen to a word they have to say. Until they go back, you know, go to rule number one and then rule number two. Paul closes this section in, in this chapter with, on verses 39 and 40. And he says, so my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. This is the consistent message throughout the entire chapter. Making prophecy, that is the ministry of the word, the priority. The proclamation ought to be the most important ministry in worship. It will build people up, it will comfort them, and it will strengthen them. But then he adds, don't discourage the true biblical gift of tongues. What is that? Well, there's an interpretation. And the reason we're not to discourage the true biblical gift of tongues is we don't know when we have someone who's in here, they may understand English and they may speak it very fluently but their native language might be something else. And to hear the praise of God in their own language would be the thing that would tilt them over to exploring more about who Jesus is. And so we want to be biblical in that. We want to make sure that we're doing what the Bible says, but we are not going to dampen the, the ministry of uh, the gift of tongues. We want to have an interpretation. God's sovereign in all of this. Over all of his gifts, he has the right to give and exercise any his gifts as he will. So what right do we have to forbid him to express himself through the biblical gift of tongues? Finally, everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. 
You know why? Because God is not a God of disorder, but a God of peace. Order in worship reflects the character of God. Order in worship reflects the character of God. God put an order to this earth. Think about it. We have four seasons. Well, maybe in Wyoming we have two seasons. And, and you know, we're, we're right in the middle of the dead of winter. Nothing. How you look at the trees, they've all gone dormant. They're not growing. There's no new life in them. There's no buds. And we live in this dormant state right now. But in the springtime, as the sun comes out, the snow melts, the, the ground thaws, all of a sudden we're experiencing new life. We see the grass turning green. We see buds on the trees. We hear birds sweetly singing in the woods, unless they're a woodpecker on your house and then they're not sweet. You call Brady. But there's, there's this order, winter, spring, summer, harvest, winter, spring, summer, harvest. God put an order together in that regard. God put an order together in our lives. That order is, is that you are born, you become a, uh, a young kid, you grow into becoming a teenager, you become a young adult, your hormones kick in, and you're going like, wow. And then you meet a young gal, and you get married, and then you have children, and you raise your children, and then they have children and grandchildren, and then you die. And you go to heaven if you're following Jesus. But there's an order to that. You don't get to start off as an old man. You don't get to start off full of wisdom. You have to earn that wisdom. God put an order to all of creation. He therefore, that is his character. And he wants the church to reflect his character, particularly when it comes to worship. Paul's words to the Corinthian church were corrective in nature. He was correcting some bad habits, some bad things that were going on. He was looking at their conduct and saying, it's unconsecrated. He wants consecrated conduct from them. And he had received reports that they were getting sidetracked with the various gifts and all the more so with the exciting gifts of prophecy and of tongues. And he wanted to bring the church back to focusing on the main thing. And the main thing is Jesus. The, the, the gospel, that's what Jesus is about. He is the gospel. It's the good news about who he is and what he has done and what he will continue to do. But all of that was getting lost in the excitement of the gifts. And the focus was to be on the giver, not the gift. And the issue that Paul was con, um, correcting with the Corinthians are the things that we need to keep in mind in our church is that we keep the main thing, the main thing. Jesus. We can't get distracted from that. 
It's all about Jesus. Any other focus will lead us into a place that God never intended for us to go. And by the way, when Jesus is no longer the focus of the, of the church, and all of a sudden something else is like uh, 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 spiritual gifts or evangelism or whatever else we, we put, even though it's, it's spiritual by nature, anything that goes up here that we put our focus on rather than Jesus we stop existing as the bride of Christ. Because the bride is always interested in the bridegroom. Always wanting to do what the bridegroom says to do. And what God's calling us to do is to focus on Jesus and make Him the main thing. Now, don't read me wrong. I'm not saying these other things, these spiritual gifts, and these, all these other great spiritual disciplines and things that God has given to us are of no value They are of great value as long as they remain in their proper place. Because when they're in the proper place, then Jesus uses them to build up his bride, to grow her to completion, to bring us to maturity, so that we have the expression of Jesus to those who don't know. And that's what God's calling us to. And we, in this church, we will continue to focus on the one thing that is most important. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the focus of all that we do. And we will continue to make him our focus. We will also use every gift that he has given to us in this church for the benefit of building one another up. We will focus on Jesus. We will connect with him. We will build each other up because we are concerned about the spiritual transformation that God has for each one of us. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And all things should be done decently and in order. Amen? Amen. Reflective questions. What do you do to prepare for corporate worship? I don't know if you've even thought about that. If you call me up and say, hey, Pastor Ken, there's a bunch of us getting together on Saturday night. We'd really like you to come and participate with us. You will hear me politely say, thank you for such a, such a great invitation, but I'm not going to come. I really appreciate that. If you press me on it, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you now so you don't have to call me and press me on it. Because Saturday is when uh, I come in here and I, I do the last editing on my talk. I do my last stuff on Saturday. Saturday I get home. And I do not want to go to a place that's going to distract me from what I have to do on Sunday morning. So I just, I love you. And I'll hang out with you Sunday to Friday. But not on Saturday. Because I want to focus my attention on what, what God's doing. I want to prepare myself for this corporate worship time. Question number two, do you come to church with an attitude of expectancy that God is going to meet you here, that he is going to reveal himself, and there will be a a spiritual impact in your life? Do you come? Do you come to church expecting God to do something? I mean, if you come in here expecting nothing, I'm going to tell you what you're going to get. Nothing. But if you come expecting God to do something, He's going to 
blow your mind. He might even blow your socks off your feet. Last question. What spiritual gift do you have that you can use to encourage hearts, give minds understanding, strengthen, and build up others in the word of God? So what I'm asking you is, what spiritual gift, before we all run out the door to get home, to get ready for the football game, (laughs) what spiritual gift are you going to use within the body of Christ? Because God's given it to you to build up one another. So don't beat feet and run out the door at the back just to get out so we can get going home because you've been here long enough. Besides, you can't get out today. We've already locked the doors or chained. I'm just kidding. We haven't taken the offering yet either. But I really believe that if, if, you, if you do the prep work on Saturday, well, you should be doing the prep work all week. But chances are you're like me on a lot of things, and you go like, oh, yeah, tomorrow's Sunday. I better do something. And so we do the prep work of the heart. I mean, you can do the prep work on the drive to church, but it'll be effective because God's always in the middle of it. But I just think that if we start to think about what it is that I'm expecting from God, what I expect God to do in my life, how is God going to minister to me that when you come here on a Sunday... God is going to do more than meet your expectations. Because the Bible tells us God does immeasurably more than we ever could ask or imagine. And that's a promise that he makes to us as we come with a heart filled with expectancy. Let's pray. Lord, I am so thankful that um, the spiritual growth and the understanding doesn't depend upon me because we'd be in deep trouble. I'm thankful for your spirit that's at work in the hearts of every man, woman, and child that walks in through the doors. And I pray that we would remember what it looks like to come and participate. You have called us to, to come and sing, to give a lesson, to give a word of encouragement, to, to give insight, to help people along. And I pray that we would use the gifts that you've given us to build up the church while we're together and then throughout the week that we'd step into those gifts. And supernaturally, you would use them to do the work that you've desired for us to do. So we commit all of these things to you. We pray that your spirit would continue to work in our hearts even as we leave this place. We bless you and praise you because you are awesome and good and never give up on us. We pray these things in Jesus' great name. Amen.